Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, July 7th, 2015, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. We are happy to announce our next Crystal Quest to Arkansas, October 11 through 17, 2015. We're gathering members of the Crystal Soul Group, which is identified by having at least one of these six star markings, either 25, 26, or 27 degrees of Capricorn or Cancer, Aquarius or Leo, Taurus or Scorpio. If you feel the call of the crystals but aren't sure if you have the required markings, just send an email to crystals at starseedhotline.com with your birth info and make sure you include the date, the exact time, the place, and also your current location. And I'll take a quick look at your charts to see if you're part of this soul family and send you more details if you are. We are so excited to present our very distinguished guest for the evening, Dr. Michael Sala who has been a leading figure in the field of exopolitics and has written several books about the extraterrestrial presence on Earth, the government's denial of such beings, and his most recent book, Kennedy's Last Stand, where he documents the tragic efforts of JFK to share the truth about UFOs and ETs. His earlier books include Galactic Diplomacy, Getting a Yes with E.T., getting to yes with et dr sala has lectured far and wide and in his story there's a common connection with lavendar namely contactee george van tassel whom you've probably heard her speak about in our other episodes this is going to be a very informative show and we're so happy to have michael with us especially with the teton meetings going on and make sure you check out his website which is exopolitics.com Org. At the top of the show, it's the Starseed News with Anastasia, bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. We'd like to thank Vanya and Tammy for hosting the switchboard this evening. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and special thanks go to Tammy for her dedication to the forum. You can download our show podcasts on iTunes or right from our Blog Talk Radio episode page. Just look for the cloud with an arrow icon. If you'd like to support our show, just click follow on our show page here at Blog Talk and you'll get our weekly show notice. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. Remote healing sessions for people and pets are also available with Tammy. If you have a birthday coming up, don't miss out on your 10 hours of power Find out when it happens by requesting your solar return timing. And if you want an interpretation of that, um, it's a stage two session. And please make sure you leave enough time um, because we are booked in advance. So 
first this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia. Hello. Well, good evening. <laughs> Hello, Ariel. Hello, Lavendar. Starseed listeners, it's going to be a great show tonight, and it's always great to be back with you. I just love my opportunity to be with Starseed in this way. Well, it's pretty quiet on the sun. They tell us solar activity is low right now. They say the quiet, however, may not last. Fast-growing sunspot AR2381 has an unstable magnetic field that does harbor energy for strong solar flares. NOAA forecasters have boosted the odds of an M-class eruption today at 45%. And also today, we have some Earth asteroid encounters in line. Asteroid uh, 2015, MO116, is going to pass by today at a distance of 4.9 lunar distance. 2005, VN5, is going to be 12.6 lunar distance. And... Asteroid 2015 HM10 is passing by rather close at 1.1 lunar distance. Three asteroids today uh, passing by our planet. The current moon phase is waning gibbous. It's 61% of full. Well, last week we talked about the conjunction of Venus and Jupiter. I asked you to go outside and look at the, at the sky as the sun was beginning to set, and even prior to that, explaining to you that the two planets were very, very close together. Well, then, after that, I discovered that according to Cosmos TV, that after an absence of roughly 2,000 years, they said the star of Bethlehem may have made a return to our night skies last Tuesday. Or, in other words, that conjunction of Venus and Jupiter that I talked to you about made their tightest, uh, highly visible conjunction in nearly 2,000 years. Now, the reference to the star of Bethlehem uh, in relation to this subject is in regard to a similarity that happened in 2 B.C., they say that then there was a very similar ultra-tight conjunction between the two planets, and they were both close by the star Regulus, as this one was, and high up in the sky, as last week's one was as well. And thus some astronomers have speculated that this earlier conjunction in 2 B.C. is exactly what the star of Bethlehem was all about. Hmm? <laughs> It was well, they, very, very bright. It was very, very bright. Hmm. So they think. You know, it, well, people didn't have glasses or eye corrective lenses back then. I mean, if someone was a little bit nearsighted, it, if if you know you you can't see well at distances, that would have been an enormous glowing blob in the sky. So that's just something to think about. Anyway. There was a 6.1 magnitude this past week that rocked China. It was northwest in China. The nearest city was located 95 kilometers from the epicenter. I'd heard no reports of damages. But there was also a 6.1 magnitude earthquake that jolted the Philippines, the southern Philippines. It uh, happened on Friday. They say that on that one there were no immediate reports of damage or injury, and the depth of that one was 30 kilometers. Two 6.1s very close apart, uh, very close together in uh, uh, magnitude, or identical, and uh, in the same area of the world. Well, there was a loud boom followed by earth shaking reported near Taconcha, Michigan. 
Now, there have been no reports of damages or injuries from this minor earthquake that rattled the region late yesterday morning. People apparently heard rather than felt this quake that measured 3.3 on the Richter scale, and many of the callers who contacted 9-11 said, or 911, I should say, uh, said that they had heard an explosion or sonic boom, uh, kind of a sound with a rumbling or shockwave that lasted maybe four seconds. Now, the strongest quake ever felt in that region was a 4.6, which hit Michigan in 1947, and some people believe that it is proof of a fault very deep, uh, deep below southern Michigan. So we don't know if that was a sonic boom or an earthquake, but there was a definite measurable um, impact on the Richter scale with that. Well, in Guatemala, the Fuego volcanic activity does intensify. Authorities in Guatemala have issued a danger warning in response to intensifying activity in the Fuego volcano. This volcano is 30 miles southeast of Guatemala City. It's been belching fiery clouds over the course of days, and the mountain has been shaken by explosions that have rattled windows and rooftops and spewed columns of ash to some 15,000 feet above sea level. Wow. And in Los Angeles... Researchers at UC Santa Barbara have discovered that maybe the West uh, L.A. fault line might slice all the way down to the Earth's mantle. They say that this is a super fascinating finding about a lower profile but yet very important fault, which they call the Newport Inglewood Fault. This fault runs along the west side through the L.A. basin and was responsible for the 6.4 Long Beach earthquake in 1933. That's a long time ago. But the new findings suggest that this fault may be way deeper than previously thought and that it may be the ancient collision site of the Pacific and North American tectonic plates. Mm. New discoveries all the time, and that's what they think. Well, I was in a discussion with family members just the other day about monarch butterflies, and this article uh, popped up on the net. Monarch butterflies, which, by the way, I haven't seen many in quite a while. If I've even seen, I haven't seen one this year. But this article claims that they are in decline nationwide, and they may be approaching dangerously low levels. They say, researchers say, that monarchs have declined nearly 80% in the 21 years that researchers have been monitoring their wintering populations from a high of up to 1 billion butterflies in the 1990s to roughly 56 million today. Now, Vermont, the state of Vermont, uh, may play an important role in the continued efforts to preserve the monarch population. Why? Because Vermont has meadows and very old fields, uh, unpopulated, that provide habitat for milkweed, which is a critical food source for the monarch butterflies. Now, the problem lies with the rest of the country because increasing levels of herbicide use in large-scale agriculture in the Midwest appear to have greatly reduced the abundance of milkweed in the midsection of the country, which has historically produced half of the monarchs in eastern North America. Now, monarchs lay their eggs on milkweed and feed on milkweed when they're caterpillars. And most eastern monarchs overwinter at a single site in the mountains of central Mexico. Monarchs need to reproduce several times during their northbound migration, and they do require milkweed for food at each of these sites. 
So one of these, uh, and I did some research on this, I love butterflies, of course I think most of us do, but what the uh, people that are interested in the conservation of butterflies are suggesting is that as many of us as possible allow our uh, properties, backyards and so on, to grow wild and to allow milkweed to flourish and and don't mow the lawn and leave the wild uh, foliage in place so that the, the monarchs may have a chance to uh, repopulate and that they won't become extinct. That would just be horrible. You know, I didn't realize this, but they are a major pollinator of crops. Not only bees, but monarchs are very significant pollinators for our food. So, uh, just something to think about. We're so sometimes concerned about keeping our lawns all groomed and everything, but so many of these critters, these wildlife need uh, everything that we might call as a weed, they eat it. So just something to think about. And I know I'm preaching to the choir about that. Well, in the UK, they had spectacular thunder and lightning storms recently. They were witnessed all across the country, and they had about 30,000 lightning strikes during one storm period. All across the planet, we are seeing some very uh, intense weather. And uh, according to reports, a Marine was injured over the weekend in the eighth shark attack along the North Carolina coast. That's just this season. The bite happened in Surf City, and the injured man was treated and released. But they say seven other people have been attacked by sharks along the North Carolina coast in the past three weeks. Now, the most recent was Wednesday, when a 68-year-old man was injured off Oracoke Island. And one of the reasons they're giving for this is that there is a drought, somewhat of a drought in that vicinity, which is causing the um, salinity of the ocean to increase. Therefore, the sharks love uh, more intense salt water, and they're coming in closer to shore. There's not as much water runoff from rain. And so that does affect the salination of the ocean. And that's fascinating. Things wow. we never, ever really think about. Mm. And in Russia, can you believe it? A town called Vorkuta has been hit by a July blizzard. It's a strange combination of green trees and white snow in the middle of summer on a video on the, on the Internet about this uh, snowstorm in Russia. Very kind of surreal and bizarre. But sure enough pretty good snowstorm there in Russia in July. And again in Russia, we had a 6.3 earthquake in Shakotan, Russia, this past week. And in southern Nevada, a thunderstorm dropped heavy rain as parts of the Las Vegas Valley uh, experienced rain that flooded roadways and made it difficult to even get through the roads for several hours. They say the hardest hit areas included Lone Mountain and Summerlin in the northwest. It received three-quarters of an inch of rain. And the eastern part of the lakes tallied over an inch and a half, maybe up to two inches of rain. So in, in that area of the country, in the desert, one has to really beware of flash flooding. I mean, it can come upon you in a moment. Uh, what would be to us in the south or in the east, an inch and a half of rain is considerable, but not tremendous. But when you're in the desert country, that can be very, very dangerous and lead to flooding very, very quickly. And in Germany, oh, wow. You know, we think of Germany as being generally temperate and cool. Well, not now. Germany has broken the national record for the highest temperature due to Europe's weekend heat wave on Saturday and Sunday. 
it reached a record of 104 degrees, and it's the highest temperature Germany has experienced since the start of record-keeping in 1881. Wow. 1881, 104 degrees in Germany. Those people are used to cool weather. I'll bet they were really hot. And uh, now we're going from hot to cold, because maybe you've heard about this. A Washington ice cave collapsed and killed one person. Yes, one person is dead after a collapse at the Big Four ice caves on Monday night in the Mount Baker Sonoma National Forest in Washington State. They say that three adults and two children were also injured. Now, that Big Four ice cave area is closed until further notice. They say the ice is fragile at the caves because of hot weather and rockfall from overhead. Now, all of Washington State has been in the midst of a heat wave since July 1st, with temperatures 10 to 15 degrees above, ash, above average. And the Forest Service issued a warning in May about sections of the cave collapsing, uh, causing concern for visitors in the area. So a warning issued in May and a disaster in July. Well, there is a controversial billion-dollar desalination plant to provide San Diego County with with a drought-proof water supply. And you know we're always talking about the drought in the West on this program and about California's predicament. Well, they're doing something about it. The final piece of the Carlsbad Desalination Project's 10-mile water pipeline was installed last week, and it's a monumental step in the process of building the largest desalination plant in the Western Hemisphere. And that plant is going to serve the San Diego County Water Authority next year, and they expect it to provide 50 million gallons of water per day to as many as 300,000 San Diegans. Now, they say it doesn't come without a price. The facility is estimated to cost $1 billion upon completion, and, you know, going by uh, the way things go, probably will end up to be quite a bit more than that. But the county has turned to desalination, desalination as California continues to battle its fourth consecutive year of drought. But some environmentalists are worrying that it may not be worth the cost. They say because the plant will draw in seawater from the ocean, where it's processed through a reverse osmosis system, which will filter out salt and other impurities. But uh, they are wondering what effect this is going to have on, on marine life. According to a 2013 study by the University of California, Davis, the high salt concentration reduces oxygen levels in the water, causing the plants and wildlife in the area to suffer. Now, the name of this plant is called Poseidon, and the plant's operator says, and I quote, Seawater desalination plants that are properly sited and utilize the best available design can effectively minimize or avoid significant marine life effects. And that's what the officials are saying. But a portion of this water uh, is going to become high-quality fresh water that they're going to distribute, and they say the rest of it will be used to dilute the filtered salt before returning it back into the ocean as concentrated seawater. So, very interesting underway. Mm. And our last story tonight is touching. There's a dog named Georgia. And Georgia got lost, but found its way home. Took it nine days. Georgia is an eight-year-old Sharpay mix and was reported missing for nine days after she got separated from her owner during a hike in a rugged rugged region in Southern uh, California. 
On Monday, the dog miraculously showed up at home, some 35 miles away from where she was lost. Well, here's some backstory about this. The owner is a 64-year-old woman who is an avid hiker, and she took the dog Georgia to the Canyon Preserve on the 27th of June. And as I said, the trail is about 35 miles away from her house. Well, the woman admitted to taking her dogs off the leash, and she said it took a few hours, which seems rather odd, but finally she realized that Georgia was missing. She said, halfway to the waterfall, I heard the dog barking and it ran off. Now, she said in the past, the dogs run away a couple of times on walks, but she'd always come back. She didn't come back. So the owner went out on multiple searches alone by herself, and then she got the park ranger, and they searched for days to find this dog called Georgia. The ranger told the owner that she didn't think she'd make it because coyotes and mountain lions are uh, on the patrol in the area at night. But on Monday morning, this woman heard the flipping sound of the doggy door, and she saw her dog, Georgia, coming into the house. Oh, my what God. What did the dog do? Isn't that something? Oh. There's a picture of her on the Internet. She's adorable, but she's all bony and skinny. What did the dog do? She hopped up on the couch. Mother, I say mother, the owner, owner, mother, mommy, <laughs> couldn't believe she was back. And the vet apparently was amazed at the good condition the dog was in. She lost about eight pounds, and she was dehydrated, but she was alive. And incidentally, everybody, to top off this story, this dog's going to have stories to tell. The dog should write an autobiography (laughs) because that's not her only adventure in life. She's a rescue dog from Hurricane Katrina. Wow. So there's a dog who... Didn't <laughs> didn't incarnate into a, a what a, a chair uh, armchair life. <laughs> this is a dog that opted for adventure, but she's well and she made it home. And I think that's amazing. Thirty-five miles, is that awesome? Wow! Don't you just love animals? It's, They're just so beautiful. Yeah, it's just beautiful. I love it. So that's it for tonight's news. I'm saving some time for our wonderful show. Going to be incredibly interesting and exciting. Absolutely, and I want to thank you so much for bringing us the Starseed News once again with things that you just can't hear elsewhere. So, Anastasia, You're so welcome. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I am going to uh, turn this over to Lavendar, and we are going to introduce our, our guest here in just a second. Let me get this microphone open. Well, Dr. Michael Sala, welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. We're so happy to have you with us. Aloha, Lavender. I'm glad to be here. We are just we're thrilled that you're here and this is Ariel and Lavendar is online, aren't you? Lavendar? Is your mute button not working again? I know she's there, but we can't hear you, sweetie. Hold on. Hello? Okay, we got you now. But are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, but it's in and out. Can you switch phones? We'll get going here in just just a moment, but um this happened a few weeks ago with the technical um hang up on the on the mute button there. 
Hello? There you go. Okay. okay. That's that's much better. All right. Let me get rid of that other phone. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. We are we are ready to go. Okay. So, Michael, are you there? I am here. Okay. Hi, Lavanda. Hello. Well, I want you to know that your book came, Galactic Diplomacy, Getting to Yes with E.T., it arrived on Friday, and I jumped right into it, and off and on throughout the weekend, I've been reading on this absolutely marvelous book. So bravo, bravo, bravo for the way that you put all this information together. You know, when uh, Richard Dolan came out with his book, A Period, D Period, After Disclosure, and when I read the contents, I had to take a nap, and that was several years ago. Well, the same thing happened to me with your book. I read the contents, and I had to take a nap. It was like, wow, you had just brought everything front and center together in, in such a way that it just, it just thrilled me. So I want to ask you, what is the definition of galactic diplomacy? Well, it's really how we conduct diplomacy with extraterrestrial civilization. And there are two really important different types of diplomacy that I discuss in the book. One is the official diplomacy that we know about when we read the mainstream newspapers where it talks about diplomatic embassies and ambassadors and negotiations happening at the international level where you have people that are appointed uh, by legislatures to take on these official positions to represent their countries in official dialogues with other nations and the representatives of other nations. So that's the official diplomacy that happens at, at the international level. Um, but there is also an unofficial form of diplomacy, which is called citizen diplomacy. Also, it's known by things like multi-track diplomacy or track two diplomacy. But, but the simplest way of describing it is that um, this is a, a, a form of diplomacy where private citizens like you and I can actually play a role in international dialogues, communications, at whatever level. So um, if there's a conflict, say for example, as we know now, in terms of uh, conflict between the United States and Iran, then as citizen diplomats, you can organize something like a basketball game with Iranian citizens and, and American citizens, and then you come together, and that's a form of citizen diplomacy. So when you kind of understand those two different types of diplomacy that happen at the international level, then you just go up a level to the galactic level where you're talking about extraterrestrial civilization. And the same thing happens. You're going to have official dialogues or diplomacy with extraterrestrial civilizations and their representatives, or you're going to have unofficial or citizen diplomacy with extraterrestrial civilizations and their representatives. And that's what I talk about in the book. Yeah. So I noticed that you had mentioned George Van Tassel uh, several times throughout the book. And uh, why don't you just uh, give us a little history of when George um, first was given information about the hydrogen bomb and, and, and presented the information to Eisenhower. Can you tell our, our, that story to our group? Sure. Well, that's a, actually a great example of citizen diplomacy because George Van Tassel actually was in communications with uh, a group of extraterrestrials that, as you know, 
were associated with the Ashtar command. And so George Van Tassel was communicating with these beings. And he received a message from them saying that uh, he needed to basically relay to the US Air Force the dangers of pursuing hydrogen bomb testing and that the thermonuclear weapons were a real threat to humanity. And, and so basically he delivered that message and also notified other people, private citizens, about the Ashtar command and how worried they were about uh, nuclear weapons and and you know what that illustrates was that you know you had attempts by this group of extraterrestrials the Ashtar command to negotiate or to start dialogue with the US Air Force and the American government to to not go down this trap of uh, the development of nuclear weapons or thermonuclear weapons in particular uh, they were ignored and so then they went with a private individual George Van Tassel and so basically what that illustrates is how track one diplomacy, official diplomacy, didn't succeed. And so then the extraterrestrials tried to work with a private individual, George Van Tassel. So that was an example of track two diplomacy, with citizen diplomacy with extraterrestrial civilizations. So George Van Tassel did that and he relayed those, um, uh, the, that information from the Ashtar command. Of course, the Air Force ignored it, but nevertheless, uh, there were things that happened in uh, 1952, which was uh, basically in the summer of 1952, when um, George Van Tassel was getting this information, and um, he was told that basically there would be a demonstration uh, by the Ashtar command that they were serious. And so then soon after, well actually the weekend after the, the letter that George Van Tassel had passed on to the US Air Force, you actually had the uh, Washington flyovers. So they were the, the famous uh, summer flyovers in 1952 over Washington, D.C., where these flying saucers were seen by thousands of people. The saucers were photographed. Uh, the radar trackings uh, were taken of the flying saucers. Pilots saw these craft. So there was so much evidence that this was real. Uh, but the U.S. government decided to just, to just cover it up. Uh, but George Van Tassel was one of those private individuals that uh, was very prominent in letting the world know that we were being visited by extraterrestrials who were very concerned about uh, nuclear weapons testing. And, and, and George Van Tassel did many other things as well, uh, such as the giant rock uh, flying saucer convention. But uh, maybe I'll just turn it over to you if you have another question. Yes, I, I went to several of those uh, conventions at Giant Rock, and and uh, it it was a place that um, I can always say started changing my life. So back to your book, I, I'm looking through the contents, and there's several uh, titles here that that really um, interest me to talk about, and one of them has to do with the um, celestial beings, celestials and ETs. Can you give us a definition? of celestial and how they interact with ETs and, and kind of how they're the guards of, I, I would say, kind of the watchers of technology? Sure. Well, probably the easiest way of describing the difference between celestials and ETs, as, as I describe it, is that celestials don't need technology to be able to move through space and time. 
whereas extraterrestrials do use technology in the form of flying saucers or uh, portals, stargates and so forth, that uh, they use these technologies to be able to move through um, space-time. And, and that's a very important part of our history and certainly in terms of what the, what the secret government has been doing for years in classified projects. So those are extraterrestrial type technologies um, and that the extraterrestrials use those. And then you have the celestials who basically have a reach um, advanced state of consciousness just by the power of their thought that they can move through space and time. So we are talking about incredibly evolved beings who have achieved that state because they have attained a certain level of uh, unity consciousness uh, which is, you can call it many names, whether it's cosmic consciousness, oneness, um, you know, that this is uh, a, a, an identification with the entire universe or the, or the cosmos, where these, where these beings, because they have been able to achieve that oneness of consciousness, therefore they are not, therefore they're able to move through space and time to anywhere in the universe because um, you know, once you've identified, once you have embraced all that is, then you can move through all that is. And there's that really beautiful little example in The Matrix uh, where, the, where the boy uh, demonstrates to Neo um, how to bend the spoon um, and, and it was along the lines where you know, Neo tr tried to bend the spoon and the boy said, uh, well, he was able to bend the spoon because he was the spoon. And I think that this, that's really a good example of this unity consciousness that highly evolved beings or celestials have achieved that. So they can move through space and time, and that means that they can just appear right in, right in front of you, you know, wherever you are listening to this radio interview, a celestial can just appear right there, right in front of you, um, if, uh, if they choose to, and if you're ready to receive or interact with them. Okay, yeah. I, I really love the way you wrote about them and the, and the difference and how uh, each, each one of them excels in their, um, in their d uh, um, divine laws. So the next thing I'd like to ask you is, um, you, you wrote a cha on Chapter 5, you talk about the, the military-industrial-extraterrestrial complex and give us a, a little bit of history of how you came to start tracking this and give us some information about the different beings that you wrote about in Chapter 5. Sure. Well, basically what happened was that in 1952 you had a new president elected. That was President Eisenhower. And President Eisenhower, uh, basically he was a Republican that believed very much in private industry. And therefore he believed that the running of the extraterrestrial projects needed to involve private industry to a much larger degree than had been occurring under the, tri uh, under the Truman administration uh, before him. And so he worked very closely with the Rockefeller family. Um, Nelson Rockefeller was uh, his national security advisor and the person that helped him reorganize government. And so basically what happened was that um, corporate America uh, played a very big role in the reverse engineering and developing of extraterrestrial-related uh, technologies that had been gained um, through retreats, flying saucer crashes, and through meetings and eventual agreements that were reached by President Eisenhower in the 1950s. Uh, 
And so that meant that as the 1950s progressed, as the Eisenhower administration reached more agreements with these visiting extraterrestrials, um, there, there was a kind of complex that developed. That was the military-industrial-extraterrestrial complex. Um, when Eisenhower gave his famous farewell speech in, in January of 1961, he just talked about the military-industrial complex uh, because that was as much as he could reveal publicly about this kind of nexus of interests uh, that had become so powerful that even the American president couldn't have control over it, uh, that it had become a rogue operation. And so what he was doing was really warning the American public and the incoming president, uh, which was Kennedy, that there was this rogue element operating in American society. And while he didn't spell out the full name, I mean, he, he talked about uh, what it was. It was the, the military-industrial um, extraterrestrial complex. Uh, he just didn't use that word extraterrestrial. But that really was a big threat that Eisenhower felt needed to be reined in, brought under the control of the executive branch of government. And unfortunately, uh, Kennedy tried to do that, but he was very unsuccessful. And that is what um, led to his assassination, as I talk about in the, in the book, Kennedy's Last Stand. Well, tell us a little bit about this book, uh, Kennedy's Last Stand. Give us a little bit more information about what you found to be true. Well, the important thing to really understand about uh, Kennedy is that Kennedy, uh, when it came to this extraterrestrial issue, knew about it from the Second World War, that he was very close friends with uh, James Forrestal. Forrestal was the Secretary of the Navy in 1945 um, and um, took Kennedy to Germany with him at the end of the Second World War in July and August of 1945 and basically uh, showed Kennedy some of the advanced technologies that the Nazis had developed. And these technologies were repatriated to the United States um, by the Navy under Project Paperclip. And so uh, Kennedy saw this. He knew about the extraterrestrial technologies that the Nazis were working on and that they had been developing flying saucer craft and they actually had done some amazing things with these craft and that they were working with, with groups of extraterrestrials. These were things that Kennedy learned about in 1945 and, uh, and then uh, Forrestal became Secretary of the Navy in 1947 and then in 1949 um, he was uh, killed or he apparently suicided, but really uh, what had happened was that he was killed because he was telling too many people, including Kennedy, what was really happening behind the scenes in terms of uh, the government um, reverse engineering extraterrestrial technologies and, and trying to start dialogues with these different extraterrestrial groups. So basically Kennedy knew all of this, um, back in, in the 1940s. So when Kennedy became president in 1961, he wanted to find out what was really going on uh, you know, in the time between when Forrestal had died and when Kennedy had now become president. In the, the kind of 12 years between Forrestal's death in 1949 and Kennedy becoming president in, in uh, January of 1961, Kennedy want, wanted to find out what had happened. And um, basically, the people that were running the extraterrestrial projects didn't want to let Kennedy know. So they kind of shut him out. And so the book basically describes the various ways Kennedy tried to 
find out what was going on in these uh, extraterrestrial projects and then how we eventually came up with a, a plan to try and get control or get access to the secret files and uh, how that led to, the, to his assassination in November of 63. Uh, well, that's something that I, I think I have known for a very long time, but I'm so glad that, you're, that you've written about it and, and bring it to the attention of people that can read it. Uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, what you wrote uh, in Chapter 6 about the Russian Prime Minister admitting that extraterrestrials live among us. Yes, well, that, that was really a, a very important uh, statement by the Russian, oh, his prime minister at the moment, uh, Medvedev, back in uh, 2012, in December, where he said that uh, every Russian president, once they start office, they are given a folder with two files in it. One of the files is all of the codes and the information about Russia's nuclear missiles, and the other code, or the other file, has information in it about extraterrestrials living amongst us and an organization that has been set up, a global organization, to monitor the extraterrestrials. And so that was very important um, information by Mendedev uh, because that confirms what many other people have been saying for, for years, that extraterrestrials live amongst us. Um, you can go back to the early contactee, uh, contactees like George Adansky or uh, Howard Menger and even George Van Tassel that all, all talked about extraterrestrials that looked like us, they were human looking and basically had infiltrated human society and basically were here to try and kind of like help us prepare for the day when uh, we would learn the truth about extraterrestrials. So they were talking about this back in the uh, 1950s uh, but, of course, this has all been covered up at the highest level, not only by the U.S. government, but governments all around the world. And and so uh, the Russian president at the time um, and prime minister, um, Medvedev, basically was saying that this was true, that this was indeed fact, that extraterrestrials do live amongst us. And uh, this this was something that uh, for people that were paying attention uh, could could really help them accept that uh, this extraterrestrial issue is a very important one and that uh, you know we have to deal with uh, the, the real ramifications of extraterrestrials not only visiting our world but also living amongst us. So and that there's been other countries that are now starting to release their UFO files. Uh, do you have a list of some of the countries that have done that? I know that Canada has, and I think Mexico, um, I don't remember about Denmark. Do you, do you have well, any about the, the list of countries? Uh, yes, yes. there's been a, a list of countries, um, as you mentioned, Denmark and uh, France and England, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, of course, um, also countries such as uh, Peru, and Mexico have been releasing their files, these official military files about uh, UFO sightings. Uh, but, you know, we really need to make clear that these are just raw data reports. These are just the raw reports from the private civilians or from officials about uh, these UFO sightings. 
they're, they're not analytical reports. They're not the analyses that official government bodies have put together on the on, the, on this raw data. So what, what you get in these reports um, is, is basically that a person, you know, on such and such a night uh, saw a particular type of UFO behaving in such a way and that uh, this UFO was also seen by a number of other people or maybe there was a photograph taken of it and so forth. So you, you kind of get the raw data reports of these different UFO sightings. Um, you know, that's very different to things like what Medvedev had done, where Medvedev was actually disclosing uh, the analysis that the Russian government had uh, reached from their knowledge of extraterrestrials visiting our world, that in fact the extraterrestrials were living amongst us. So that was more the kind of high-level, top-secret, classified um, an analysis that governments do make behind the scenes but rarely release to the public. In the case of Russia, they were releasing it to the public. In Chapter 7, you start talking about exposing the covert counterintelligence program and how that uh, intelligence agencies start monitoring contactees, de debunking, and discrediting. Can you give us some information about that chapter? Oh, yes, that's a very important um, chapter, that, because it basically talks about the Galactic Cointel Pro. And, and what that is was that was a, a, a classified program put in place um, in the early 1950s, 1952, actually, uh, with the creation of the Psychological Strategy Board. And the job of that organization, which was affiliated with the, the CIA, but also worked with the State Department and other um, intelligence organizations. The job of that entity was to discredit uh, reports about UFOs, flying sources, and extraterrestrial life. So it was basically a topic that was considered to be a national security threat. And anyone such as uh, Van Tassel or Adamski, Menga, any of those contactees that were talking about human-looking extraterrestrials uh, living amongst us or wanting to contact uh, humanity in general, uh, these people were under very heavy surveillance. Uh, they were also um, discredited as far as possible with false stories and FBI uh, reports uh, basically making them out to be uh, scanners or, or basically liars. And, and this, was a, this was a program that uh, continued right uh, throughout the 50s and 60s up until the present moment. It, it hasn't stopped because basically this is a great national security threat to those that uh, want to keep the earth in this kind of um, isolation where we are kept ignorant of the extraterrestrials visiting us we are kept ignorant of the advanced technologies that can basically revolutionize medicine, that can revolutionize the energy industry, that can revolutionize the aviation industry. I mean, there's no reason why we can't have technologies where we can travel from where I am in Hawaii to, say, New York City to just a couple of minutes rather than, you know, like a 15-hour round trip or 15-hour flight with stopovers and everything that these are all technologies that are there that can be released, but they're not because the powers that be 
don't want this technology released, as well as all of these other advanced technologies, uh, which basically maintain the wealth of the uh, of the the richest corporations on the planet, pharmaceutical corporations, the oil industry, the mining industries, all of these different corp corporations that rely on the existing technologies in our world, they would all be the big losers if these advanced technologies that extraterrestrials want to introduce to us suddenly became public knowledge. So this is all what the Galactic Cointelpro tries to do, has been doing, and continues to do today. Yes, well, I, I think that their time has come to where that it's time for the cabal and all of those, you know, greedy, um, master-controlling energies take a hike or leave the planet. And, it, and I think that the time is coming when the citizens of the world are coming together to do that. And on page 291, you talk about Declaration for Citizen Contact Councils and some of the work that you've done with other organizations. First of all, uh, tell us a little bit about ExoPolitics and then tell us how that the people that are listening to this show can become involved with the things that, that the Citizen Contact Councils are putting together. Sure. Well, ExoPolitics... Um, it, it's really the simplest way of understanding it is it's, it's the politics of extraterrestrial life. Uh, what we have in our world is a set of policies that have been officially developed to respond to extraterrestrial visitors, uh, but all of these policies have been uh, developed in secrecy and implemented in secrecy. And so the work that I do uh, on my website, exopolitics.org, is basically try to expose the policies that have been secretly developed and that have been uh, implemented um, since, the, since the 1930s and the 1940s concerning extraterrestrial life. And it's all about um, secrecy. And, and so the way in which we as a general public can become exopolitically active is to start learning about uh, these extraterrestrial policies that have been developed. Um, because it, it goes far beyond just the simple question of, you know, are extraterrestrials visiting us? Um, you know, there is so much information and data that shows that we are being visited. Um, the real question is, why aren't we being told the truth? And that's where we need to become exopolitically active. That's where we need to take action. It's you know it's 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 nothing different to say uh, like the uh, the civil rights movement movement of the 1950s and the 1960s when when you know when people said well how can we become active in, in civil rights um, you know to try and redress the the grievances of a certain minority of the American population that were being um, exploited or segregated or mistreated in some way. Um, well, the big thing was to be, educate yourself first about the issues and then to become politically active, to do whatever you felt was appropriate to you. You know, if you're a musician, you can write songs. If you're an artist, you can do artwork. If you're, if you're good at uh, um, creating websites, you can do websites, launch petitions. There are so many different things that people can do to become exopolitically active. If you're a university student, you can start an exopolitics club to make people politically, exopolitically aware. 
And, and as each of us start off with these small private individual actions to raise exopolitical awareness, then we will be ready to start taking the, the, the next step, which is action. Um, and, and, and every successful kind of uh, um, civil rights uh, issue or, or public protest issue or kind of major issue of uh, global importance always starts with people becoming aware of the issues and then taking action. And, that, and so that's what we have to do with exopolitics. You know, there was a definition that I really um, read over and over again. It's called Individuals Without Distinction, that proportion of global humanity not occupying representative public office, not having significant control of mass media, or owning appreciable financial resources. You know, I closed my eyes and thought about that, and I thought, yes, these are, these are the ones, uh, individuals without distinction, will rise up all over the planet, and I thought, a lot of star seeds are like that. The people that I've been tracking through these astrological timing uh, that I have been tracking for years, 25, 26, and 27 degrees in astrology, I would say that a lot of them are individuals without distinction, and they're ready to rise up and take their place in the scheme of things. So I really, um, people that are listening to this show, you know, stay connected to Michael and his website because he's putting things together where, uh, a lot of citizens uh, all over the world will be able to communicate and, and start making things happen. You know, it, we've got to do it. We can't rely on the 1% of the world to do, to do dictating to us anymore. I couldn't agree more with you, Lavendar. It's really, yes, I'm understanding that we're the 99% or 99.9% and that we are the ones that have to manifest our new reality by collectively thinking through and becoming aware of these possibilities and, and making that happen through our collective action. I noticed that you, you talk quite a bit about um, um, Robert Dean in your book, being a whistleblower. Can you give us a little uh, story about Robert Dean and some of the things that he contributed as being a whistleblower? Sure. He he was a command sergeant major with uh, NATO, and he was uh, stationed at NATO's headquarters in Paris. It was in, in the early 1960s, and he came across a document that was classified cosmic top secret. And in that document that was a NATO document, it was studying the different extraterrestrial uh, races that had been visiting us and that the document talked about extraterrestrials being amongst us and the concerns that leading admirals and generals had that extraterrestrials could easily infiltrate the military and even infiltrate uh, government at the highest level. And, uh, and so Robert Dean um, was very important because he was one of the, the most credible whistleblowers to come forward to reveal that there was uh, a very high-level policy paper that existed in, in NATO that dealt with the extraterrestrial issue and basically was uh, trying to get different NATO nations to uh, acknowledge just the magnitude of this question of extraterrestrials. Yeah, he's, he's brought a lot of real interesting information. Have you ever been to Roswell? Have you been to that 4th of July um, conference that they have every year in, in, in Mexico. Do you, have you been to that? 
Uh, no, I haven't. Not not yet. Um, Roswell's not an area that I've done much research in because it's uh, it's something that other people have researched so well that there's no need for me to to research it. Um, but yeah, there's there's some really good researchers out there who've done incredible work on the Roswell crash, and I think that's a very important milestone in understanding right. our history. I, I noticed that you talk a lot about the Montauk projects and. And Preston Nichols is Preston Nichols still alive? Do you know? Uh, yes, he is, as, as far as I know, still alive. Uh, Al Bielek uh, pra- uh, passed away just recently, but I think Preston is still with us. Yeah, yes, I think that um, that those stories are. Uh, I, I hope that we always have someone that keeps up with the the stories of Montauk because I think we're not through finding out more and more about what happened at Montauk. So is there something that you would like to share with us that um, that you have learned from some extraterrestrial sources or maybe some of the Pleiadian information or some of the ET technology that 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 you know about that would be interesting for, for our group? Yes. Yes. I think it's very important uh, to understand that um, you know, there are many different extraterrestrial civilizations watching us. You know, some of them really want to help us move forward. Others are wanting to basically suppress us or control us. And, and there are others that are, are kind of uh, wanting us to take action ourselves to basically restore uh, righteousness on our planet. And I think the ones that want us to help ourselves are basically behind the disclosures that are happening at the moment. Um, there's uh, a lot of disclosures uh, that, are, that are coming through uh, through this new whistleblower called Corey Good, who is working with a group of extraterrestrials uh, that are from the sixth to the ninth dimension. Um, they're celestials, really. Uh, that's how I would describe them. They're, they're celestials. He calls them uh, the sphere being alliance. So these celestials are here and they don't want to just kind of come in and, and solve the problems of our planet for us. What they're doing is that they're helping the truth come out because they say it's only through the truth coming out, the kind of things that we've been talking about in this show and people realizing of what has been happening, that we can change our world that if extraterrestrials suddenly showed up in the sky, and I think you know, I, along with many others, always want extraterrestrials to just show up in big ships over our sky, uh, in the skies, and therefore end the, uh, end, and therefore end the secrecy. If that were to happen, in a way, uh, humanity would become dependent on the extraterrestrials that showed themselves uh, because you know they were the, the key instrument of us learning the truth. We become dependent on them in a way, and so these celestials are saying rather than us being uh, dependent on any one or groups of extraterrestrials, uh, positive extraterrestrials even, that it's better for us to realize the truth ourselves, and then and then we manifest contact. So yes, we need to first raise our own awareness, learn the truth, expose the, the many terrible things that have been happening, and then we are ready to welcome the positive extraterrestrials. Uh, does your information show that that the greys are not as robust as they've been in the past, that that there was a roundup not too long ago where about, I don't know, about 2,000 of them were taken off the planet? Have you heard anything about that? 
Oh, well, as far as I know about the greys, is, is that they're kind of almost like a robot, robotic or synthetic life form that, that really do the dirty work of more powerful or more evolved extraterrestrials or even military industrial groups. You know, there, there are greys that work with uh, uh, government contractors, uh, corporate contractors who have that kind of technology to uh, biologically reproduce grey extraterrestrials and they use them. And of course there are more more powerful beings like uh, reptilians who uh, use uh, grey ETs for all sorts of things. So the, the real question is, um, are there the kind of more negative extraterrestrial groups are they being reined in? Are they leaving the planet? I, I think um, there has been a, a lot of pressure on them to stop doing uh, a lot of the negative things that they have been doing. I believe some of them have left, but some of them are still here. Um, so it really is up to us to kind of like expose what's left and what they've done in the past. Yes, I, I totally agree. So do you think that we are coming into an alignment with um, being able to become ambassadors during this period of time, you know, when they do come and show themselves, and I think they will. I think that we'll wake up one day and there's going to be hundreds of ships in the air, and at that time we'll be called upon, those of us that know the truth about everything concerning them, um, we'll be looked as as ambassadors, we'll have to probably calm down our friends, our families, our communities. You know, look exactly. You're, you're, everyone that's listening to this show, and all the audience, all of the star seeds, uh, they are going to be very important in what what happens once uh, open contact happens, because there are going to be billions of people on this planet who simply have no karmic or no kind of soul connection with uh, extraterrestrials who for them these extraterrestrials will be kind of like, you know, kind of like in a way something that they can't possibly fathom. Um, it'll be so strange to them. So the, the millions of star seeds on the planet who have been, uh, who have incarnated here, you know, their jobs are going to be exactly what you've, what you've said. They're going to be ambassadors. They're going to be teachers. They're going to be the kind of intermediaries, the liaisons uh, between the extraterrestrials and the rest of humanity who simply don't understand or fathom, uh, you know, how how these extraterrestrials could possibly exist or how they communicate. You know, like uh, the the simplest thing um, is, well, you know, with these extraterrestrials, many of them don't have the kind of compartmentalized mind or fragmented mind we have with with an unconscious, with a, a subconscious mind and a conscious mind and all of these kind of compartments in our mind, that many of the extraterrestrial civilizations, the majority of them that are visiting us, don't have this kind of fragmented mind. Their minds are, are much more unified and they communicate telepathically. Um, so you can imagine what, what shock it would be for an ordinary person um, Joe Sixpack, who meets an extraterrestrial whose mind is not fragmented, whose thoughts are very focused and very powerful. Um, you know, this you know, Joe Sixpack is going to need help in trying to make that kind of contact and, and get up to speed. Yeah, I was noticing um, in the book when you were talking about Alex Collier. Uh, we all love Alex Collier and his work that he's done, and and he mentions here that. 
The Andromeda Council is an intergalactic and interstellar governance and development body of aligned benefic star systems and planets of sentient intelligent life for the worlds in both the Milky Way and the Andromeda Galaxies. The Andromeda Galaxy is also known as M31 to the people of Earth. The chaired members of the Andromeda Council comprise a total of 12 different distinct member world and races. Can you give us some more information about about this uh, Andromeda Council? Well, Alex uh, has, uh, is the person who uh, talked about the Andromeda Council uh, back in the 1990s when he first came out. And um, he basically described them as a council that um, was set up uh, to coordinate many different extraterrestrial civilizations um, that were working together in areas of common interest, uh, kind of like a... Um, Michael, are you there? We lost. I, I, lost. Yeah, um, he, he, Michael, you're still on the switchboard. Just sounds like your connection was lost. Are you there, Michael? Oh, no, he he got he got dropped. So we're gonna have to wait for him to call back in. Um, okay, well, I, I'll just keep talking. It, I was looking at. The Andromedas are one of the main extraterrestrial races most responsible for crop circles. It says that also the, the communications of the crop circles is to negative extraterrestrials, showing the consequences of their actions to control and manipulate humanity. I had never thought about that before, like giving a warning to those that are trying to, you know, come down to the planet and, and, and start manipulating humanity. I thought that was wow. a very interesting observance. Back wow! Yet. Yeah, I never, I never thought about that. Okay, Michael is back. Yes, I'm back. Hi. Are you back? Okay. I, I was hoping that you'd call right back in. Um, yes. yes, I'm not sure why I got cut off, but uh, anyway, I'm back here. Maybe someone didn't want me to talk about the Andromeda Council. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about it anyway. I was just saying that that uh, you had written in your book that that some of them are responsible for those crop circles, and and they also maybe are giving negative extraterrestrials warnings about coming to the planet to control or manipulate humanity. And that's what I had just said while you were gone. So you can take it from there. Yes. Uh, the Andromeda Council, uh, they were very prominent in having Alex reveal uh, some of the darker things that was going on. Uh, I think the Andromeda Council understood that in order for our world to truly change, that we needed to come to grips with a lot of the negative things that were happening. And so Alex talked a lot about um, the the way in which uh, the, the negative extraterrestrials were kind of manipulating humanity. He talked about the draconians, uh, the Sakars, uh, the, the greys or the Dows, and he described the, the various things that they were doing uh, to people, basically... Um, manipulating humanity, uh, reaching agreements with uh, uh, various uh, secret government entities and so forth. And so uh, the Andromeda Council was giving Alex all of this information uh, because they wanted this all revealed. And, um, and there were a lot of people that were wondering, well, why, 
wasn't Alex um, like revealing more of the positive side of what was going on. Um, as far as I understand, I mean, Alex did talk about the, the kind of more positive aspects of uh, the, the Andromedans in terms of uh, uh, how the more evolved extraterrestrial civilizations behave. But that his job seemed to be more one of just exposing uh, what was really going on with the planet in terms of uh, the negative extraterrestrial um, infiltration and control over secret governments and uh, corporations and so forth. So that's what he was doing. And uh, he, he, he paid a very heavy price for doing that. Um, and he's been struggling uh, very recently. Um, I'm really glad that he's, be, he's going to be going to this uh, Mount Shasta conference uh, that's being organized by Rob Potter. Um, I think it's around August uh, 20. I'll actually be going myself, and there's a few other really uh, interesting uh, extraterrestrial contactees that will be there as well, Olmec, Olmec and um, uh, Scott Lemriel and uh, Craig Tampabasso, who, who covered the uh, Valiant Thor material. So um, I'm looking forward to catching up with Alex there and, and, and seeing what uh, what the Andromedans have been telling him um, more recently or what, he, what he's learned about uh, where we are now. Do you think that, that you could talk to him about being a guest on our radio show? Uh, definitely, yes. I can, I can definitely get in touch with him and... When I see him, let, you know, let him know that uh, you're interested in Absolutely. having him on the Absolutely. I have no way of finding him. So anytime I find anyone that's talking to him, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get to him to see if he'll, if he'll be a guest on our show because we just really adore and, and, and love the work that he's done already. And there's several of us that would love to contribute to his funding and to help him financially. So we need to find him. Sure. Well, um, maybe by email I can put you in touch with him. Yeah, okay, good. Good, thank you. He, I know that he talks about the spiritual technology using sound and color to change the biomagnetic energy grid. Do you have any more information about this? I don't recall kind of at the top of my head the, the kind of uh, spiritual technology that Alex was talking about, um, but his book, uh, Defending Sacred Ground, I think you would probably find that. I, I do. I, I do know that Alex um, did some interviews. Uh, one of the interviews was about galactic history, and he talked about different uh, extraterrestrial civilizations and and how they've been uh, intervening um, in our history. And he talked about 22 different extraterrestrial civilizations that have done so. Um, so that's that's something that I've uh, that I've got. Uh, through my website, uh, yeah, it, actually the easiest way to find that would be to just Google Alex Collier Galactic History and you, you'll find the article. But in that article, um, I think he, he, he'll, he does talk a little bit about the different ET races and how they use these advanced technologies. So maybe you'll get some answers there. Okay, good, good. So... Um so would you be willing to um, talk to some of our callers um, from the switchboard? Uh, I'm happy to, yes. Okay, good. So let's stay in touch, Michael, and I, I hope that uh, that we get to meet in the future. I would love to, to meet you in person. I've been following your work for some time, and, and I'm, I'm sorry that it's taken this long for us to invite you to be on our show, but it just 
seemed to happen to be at the right time. So I'm going to turn well, you, I'm going to turn you back over to Ariel who has the switchboard. Thank you so thanks, much. Thanks, Linda. Aloha. Okay. All right, and um, uh, when you are when you're out at at Mount Shasta, um, make sure you say hi to Craig Campobasso for us because he's he's been on on our show about four times and we just adore him. Um, I will. So, yeah, you know it's really kind of a small world in that respect because uh, uh, there's so many people that you've been talking about that that we know and and uh, I mean especially I mean it, it all tracks back to George. Van Tassel. But uh, for the callers on, um, if you already called in, you'll need to press 1 on your keypad so we know that you have a question or, or a comment um, for Michael. And if you are listening on your computer, you'll need to dial 917-889-8292 and then press 1 so that we know you want to come on and talk to Michael. So it'll probably take a minute or two um, for people to get onto the switchboard. So um, I noticed on on your website that I mean you are you're a very busy person. I mean you're just talking and, and lecturing and um, meeting with people all over the place. I mean, have you how many countries have you been in? Oh, I've probably been in, uh, I have to say, you know, 15 to 20, something like that, um, because uh, so many people are very interested in the extraterrestrial topic, and um, this is a global phenomenon, so people all around the planet uh, are really interested in it, and some countries are more open to it than others. Uh, some countries are much more open to the spiritual aspects. Uh, other countries uh, are more open to the kind of uh, more phenomenal a- a- aspect, uh, you know, like the, the sightings themselves. So people differ, cultures differ. I found uh, people in uh, um, in Peru and Bolivia, for example, are very interested in the spiritual aspect of the extraterrestrial phenomenon. Yeah, well, that, that would make sense because they're... I mean, long, long time um, spiritual masters in you know in the mountains, and um, we actually we actually have a listener in um, Peru who lives on top of a mountain, and he has all these um, loudspeakers outside, and he plays the radio show on the loudspeakers so that um, all, all of creation can hear it. So yeah, the, the other countries. I think Europe um, is a lot more open um, in the general populace than than Americans. Maybe um, have you found that? Uh, yeah, Europeans don't seem to have as much uh, of a kind of repressive state system around them to kind of uh, uh, stop this from happening. So you know, for example, Omnek Omnek. Uh, she had to leave the United States um, because I think uh, the things that she was talking about, uh, she just wasn't going to be allowed to talk about that here in the United States. So she was able to go to Germany, and I think she spent a lot of years in Germany. And you know that was because uh, in Germany and Europe, it's not safer to take uh, to talk about these things uh, because you, you don't you don't have the intelligence organisations kind of there. 
um, basically trying to stop you from awakening the people because uh, you know, the CIA and the NSA, you know, frankly, they're not too worried about what the what the German or what the Italian population think. Right, right. Well, I guess there's just a, a, a an inherent arrogance to some of the upper level. Um, government agencies that and they don't really care what <laughs> a country across the ocean um that, i mean you know what i'm saying they don't they don't really give much uh, um credit to other countries but they are i think a lot more open um in in other areas as well well you know that's exactly right there's a kind of cultural bias here and you know i mean you, you could have an um an extraterrestrial mothership Kind of land in uh, you know in a in a European capital city like Berlin, say, and you know the Western media might ignore it and just say, oh well, this is just a blip. They're just they're just testing uh, a new marketing strategy for uh, the, the the rollout of of the, the new Zeppelin company. It's just a blip being tested. But you can have a mothership land in. Berlin and extraterrestrials meeting private citizens, and, and the media here would just run the story that this is just a big uh, kind of marketing campaign for a, for a German uh, Zeppelin plane. Oh, well, in in our experience and understanding from all the the guests that we've had and the people that we talked to, um, that people don't really need the government to tell them. Um, they're here or they're not here, because people are going to think what they what they believe. I mean, they're going to believe and and follow their own intuition. And I, I think that the vast majority of people don't need disclosure because they already know. And uh, I mean, that's country boundaries notwithstanding. So the uh, the governments will be. <laughs> <laughs> be like covering up an empty box before it's all over. So, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm I'm waiting for people. If you have a question or a comment for Dr. Solop, um, you'll need to press one on your keypad, and uh, that way we'll know that you want to come on the air. And if you're not listening on your phone, if you're on the computer, then you have to call before you can talk. It is nine one seven eight eight nine eight two nine two. So how many different species, uh, races, have you um, heard about? What would you put well, the time at? Well, in the uh, Galactic Diplomacy book, I, I, I talk at length about, uh, about 19 different extraterrestrial races, um, and I give descriptions of them and what they've been doing, uh, uh, you know, ranging from those that are very positive, that have been helping humanity raise consciousness or introducing kind of um, more evolved uh, practices, whether it's healing or, or meditation or consciousness raising, pop circles and so forth, to other races that, are, that have been basically doing things to manipulate and control humanity. So I, I talk about 19 in, uh, in the book. Um, but I know that there's there's roughly somewhere in the range of 40 to 60 different extraterrestrial races that have um, very strong interests 
in what's happening here in humani- uh, on our planet that are doing various things that they might not have a genetic connection to us. You know, for example, like the Andromedans, they might not be g- genetically related to humanity, uh, but they still have a very strong interest in what's going on on the surface of the planet. And so they're kind of acting in, in, in that um, kind of uh, role of, of, of trying to be positive intermediaries. Um, in, in the work that I'm doing at the moment with this new whistleblower, Corey Good, he, des- he describes uh, how he's been uh, appointed to be a delegate uh, for this Sphere Being Alliance. These are a group of celestials that I spoke about earlier. Um, and basically, he's going to these meetings with uh, this council or this um, kind of uh, conference involving all of the, the positive uh, extraterrestrial groups. And he, he describes this uh, council or this, this conference as actually having in that range of 40 to 60 different extraterrestrial races uh, that are kind of human or humanoid that have an interest in us. So that's where you'll find... You know, the, the Syrians, the Andromedans, the Pleiadians, the Arcturians, the Talsetians, and so forth. And of of all the ones that you have, I mean, I'm I've personally I believe that they're really just a just a handful of the ETs who are not here to help us and and that they're far outnumbered by the ETs who are either here to help us, they're here to observe, they're here to make sure that that the laws are, you know, universal laws are upheld. And, um, you know, does it just seem like the, um, that the, <laughs> the, the, the bad guys get more press, they get more media attention for the, you know, um, for the purpose of keeping people uh, intimidated? You're exactly right, Ariel. It's, um, the, the the good guys or the the, the positive extraterrestrial races they outnumber the the negatives greatly, um, and and that's and that's just um, just just the nature of uh, extraterrestrial civilizations or the galactic uh, society, um, and it kind of reflects. Um, our planet as well, you know, as, as above, so below. These are kind of hermetic uh, principles or maxims uh, because uh, in our society we know um, that 1% basically control the 99% and that 1% are the elite that don't have compassion, that basically do uh, cruel things or uh, are, are very much just interested on their, on, uh, for themselves. But the 99% of humanity are kind of caring, empathic beings that do want to help one another and, and basically do want to make our world a, a positive, peaceful place. So the, the galaxy is no different. As far as I can tell, the galaxy is similar. You have like you know, the same kind of ratio. 99% of the galaxy uh, has positive beings that really just want to help and be of assistance and have empathic connections with others. And then you have like that 1% who really are just into themselves and want to manipulate and want to control and get power and so forth. 
And, and so, yeah, the, the, the positives vastly outnumber the negatives. And all we need to do to change our planet's future is to, is to just expose the corrupt systems that are being put in, pray, in, in place. As, as once we expose everything, um, then the, the positive forces can actually uh, help us clean it all up. But we have to expose everything. We need to make people aware of what's really going on because it's only through secrecy that that 1%, you know, whether we're talking about the, the elites on Earth or the, the kind of more negative ETs operating in the galaxy, it's only through secrecy that these beings are able to do the things that they do. Right, right. And we do have to um, kind of... Uh take a look at, at, at the reality of it and the vast number of extraterrestrials are, are either <laughs> related to us genetically um, or at least the observers don't interfere and um, it's just the, that very, very small percentage that, that gets because they're, they're, they're so... Uh, unconscionable, uh, but they get a lot of they get a lot more attention. And all, all the movies in Hollywood, they're really trying to instill this, um, you know, alien invasion. You know, they're going to come and eat us and and get people fearful so that they'll hand over their civil rights. And um, and it's just it's a bunch of smoke and mirrors in in uh, my opinion. Um, we do have a a question that just um, that just came in, and um, this is from from Vanya. So Vanya, I'm going to let you go ahead and ask your question. Hi, good evening. Hello. Hello. Um, my question actually is uh, since you're just bringing up the topic of communication of ETs, and and there are many people on the face of the planet now that that claim that they channel one being or another. Um, there's also uh, the communication of light language. Um, I wanted to under, uh, see what your opinion is on the communication of ETs to humans via the use of light language. Hi, Vanya. Um, uh, the Hi. use of light, the use of light language. Um, I don't know how extraterrestrials are doing that with uh, with people. I know that there are a lot of people that. So they're in telepathic communications with extraterrestrials. So I've, I've had kind of a, you know, a bit of experience with that aspect of the communication um, where people have um, had various ways in which telepathically they're kind of interfacing or linked with extraterrestrials um, and they're getting information from them in that way. Um, maybe you're talking about um, light language, maybe in terms of the dream state or something. I'm not quite sure what you, what, what you mean by the communication through light language. Um, light language is um, basically various different non-earthly origin languages that are channeled through um, different people that um, bring in kind of like uh, sacred geometry, color, light, sound. It's It's like harmonics that are coded to um, assist people. And mm -hmm. I, uh, from my understanding, this is of ET origins, and it's from multiple different galaxies and universes that surround us. 
So I was just wondering if you knew anything about that or could maybe add to that. Okay, yes. Um, yes, that is, that is different to the kind of telepathic communications that uh, a lot of people say that they're having with different ET races. I, I know of um, a, a, a few people that have actually experienced something like that. Alex Colley is one of them. He actually described it to me um, as... It's like he gets this information. It's like a multifaceted jewel, if you like, and it's kind of like the Andromedans implant his mind or download this information into his mind. It's kind of like, as you were saying, a kind of light language, if you like, because this jewel, depending on... Uh, it's like he can see it within his mind or with his mind's eye within him, and he says that it's, it's, like, um, it's like these uh, downloads. It's like downloads on, on whatever topic... And it's just a, like a just a, a gestalt, and it's like when he looks at it from one angle, it's like he understands uh, what's in it. Um, then when he looks at it from another angle or another facet, he gets a completely different look. So he he says, for example, that even though the Andromedans downloaded this information to him like a decade ago, um, when he looks at that the, the same downloads again. Uh, with his current world, uh, with his current world experience and circumstances, what he sees is a completely new set of information. Um, mm -hmm. So, so yes, there's, yes, Alex has uh, kind of communicated to me in that way. And there's also another person who I've um, uh, been in touch with who's a contactee, and uh, he describes something similar, like these downloads, like these um, ideas or or bursts of energy that have been downloaded into him and it's like he says in his dream state or in visions or something it's almost like these things burst and it's like he gets all this information about um, new technologies or um, information about the galaxy but he says uh, for him it's more about new technologies and so that uh, so then these new technologies he starts to work on them so it's um, it's very interesting, but yes, I, I think uh, you know that communication through the light language seems to be something that certain ETs do to download a lot of information in small packages of light or crystalline light, and and people when they're ready can receive that. Wonderful, excellent. Okay, well. Okay. That's a great facet. Thank you so very much. Okay, Thank okay. You for more uh, questions coming up, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and now we've we've got um, several people wanting to to come on and talk to you. So, um, as, as soon as <laughs> as soon as Vanya um, gets back to work, <laughs> we can uh, we can get them through the the uh, the screen room and on the air. I'm on it. Okay. Thanks. All right. Well, um, while we're waiting for that, um, did you happen to see the the, the two-hour um, video interview that that Alex did? Um, I think it was in '94. Are you there, Michael? Yes, I'm. I'm here. Um, I've seen a lot of these videos. Um, the '94 video. That one just doesn't quite come to mind. Yeah, was well, there something in particular um, he talked about in that? Well, I mean, he talked about, I mean, just it was all like a a, a crash course in um, 
extraterrestrial um, observations and his experiences, and um, he talked a lot about Viseus, his Andromedan um, mentor, and uh, described the different you know personalities. And um, he did he did this interview with um, such eloquence and sincerity that uh, and this was I mean I heard and this was a long time ago that I saw this for the first time and uh, we just we just really um, appreciate what he has had to endure to bring this information to the public but the one thing that um, one of the most memorable things that that he said was a quote from Viseus that always uh, stuck in his mind and now it's kind of stuck in mine and if you think about it it is just it's so deep and so true uh, Viseus said the love you withhold is the pain that you carry if you think about that yes it's so, that so true so many so many layers the love you withhold is the pain that you carry so you know you 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 choose to um withhold love to to punish or manipulate someone um it's going to turn into pain that you have to carry so um yes that's next. a very important uh, kind of uh aphorism there that and i think it's very important to note that that is the key for evolution that the races that have evolved highly they understand that uh, the way in which you do evolve, the way in which you are able to achieve this kind of cosmic consciousness is is through love um, because love breaks down the barriers and, and the love you deny is the pain you carry. It's like you're separating yourself from others. And and if you do that, that means that you, you can't evolve consciousness-wise, or that there's, a, that there's a certain limit to which you evolve consciousness-wise, and, um, and that means you're going to be dependent in some way, and that's going to ultimately uh, create some pain in your life. And I think it's very important to understand that everything that happens around us is a manifestation of our consciousness and is a manifestation of what things in our unconscious that are not resolved so if you deny love or you you carry a certain pain um, and you don't resolve that in your life then you are going to manifest a situation where you're going to have to deal with that um, in in a very direct way and that can be a very painful thing and that can that can range from anything from a, a, a physical illness to some kind of accident to war um, for collectives. So, you know, Alex uh, is very correct, or, or Viseus is very correct in, in that saying that, yes, the, the love you deny is the pain you carry. And, and if we don't resolve that and, and basically open ourselves and 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 have that empathic connection to everyone, even even those who do the most terrible things, you know, those the draconians and the um, you know, those that have been doing the, the worst atrocities on the planet, 
um, you know, there's a, we still need to have compassion for them because they themselves are victims. They themselves are being manipulated. I mean, this is, this is um, very important to appreciate that the people who often inflict the greatest harm on others are themselves victims at some level. And right. so if, if we can have compassion for them, then we can grow. Well, yeah, and then and there's no repercussions from compassion, but if you pass judgment, then there is repercussions from that. So uh, we have we have two more callers now with questions. So we are first going to talk to Natalie, as soon as I get your mic open, dear. Okay, Natalie, you're on the air with Dr. Michael Sala. Hello, how are you? Great. Aloha, Natalie. Aloha, Dr. Sala. Um, I just had a simple question. I didn't understand what you meant at the beginning of your sentence in your blurb. Um, you're a pioneer of development of exopolitics, but the political study of key actors, what does that key actors, institution, and processes associated with extraterrestrial life mean? Okay, well, that's kind of a a very general political science definition of any sub-discipline. When you're looking at something, whether it's international politics or comparative politics, you always identify who are the key actors, like people, individuals. What are the key institutions? So, for example, in the international level, we would say, say, the United Nations. Uh, we would say the European Union, uh, the, the United States. Okay, so uh, you're the, saying actors as in general, not actors as in actors. Exactly, yes. It, it's, it's just a, a general... Actors in life. Science. Right. Uh, yes, not, we're not talking about actors as in the, you know, like stage or anything. We're, we're talking about who are the key players, you know, whether it's a president, whether it's an individual, whether it's, you know, Steve uh, or Bill Gates or any, anyone that is a, an individual or an individual country as opposed to institutions, as opposed to processes. I understand. As to your previous conversation, is it about... Ego versus the heart? Um, I, I don't know about that. I, I think um, ego is something we can truly get away from. I, I think it's, you can still have heart, compassion, and, and an ego. I mean, I, I don't think having an ego stops you from being compassionate and loving. I, I think... Um, um, Really because doesn't being, ego always get into the way of the heart and say, hey, you got to stop that from happening from that, and then your heart says, but I'm compassionate and I give more leeway over here? Um, I, I think uh, the, the ego, in a, in a way, is, is more... Uh, to me, it's, it's almost like, uh, if I use the analogy, it's like... Um, the, the, the legislative versus the executive branches of government. Uh, so in our life, uh, the, the ego is like the executive branch of who we are, whereas the heart is like the legislative branch. 
And, and when the heart is in charge, then you have legislation passed and the, the kind of ego does it. But when the ego is in charge, uh, you know, it's like having a, a tyrant, you know, running, controlling the Senate. And that's, you know... Right. It's, it's, it's the it's, government it's, running our system. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's true. I just wanted to ask that. Um, I really appreciate your time. And I thank, thank you, you for asking my questions. And thank you so much for calling, Natalie. Good night. Okay. Bye-bye. And um, our next caller, if I uh, pronounce your name correctly, is it Althea or Althea? Um, you're on the air with Dr. Michael Sala. Hi, Dr. Sala. Blessings all star seeds. Powering Hello, up, hi, I hope. Althea. Aloha. My question to you is about the processes of the ETs um, regarding the light body or healing techniques that are about integration of the entire process of the self, so of, of the spiritual self. Sure. Is there something specific about that, the, the light body, the healing of the light body? The healing of the light body, the integration of the light body. So bringing in one's true self um, to anchor in within their body. Sure. Well, many different ET races have been giving us information for how to reconnect with our light body, um, how to meditate, how to um, develop kind of uh, awareness of sacred ge geometry and how that connects to our light, bo light body. Uh, there have been many people that have been um, working with ETs or with celestials in particular because this is more what the celestials do is to help raise our awareness about our spiritual body. Um, uh, there's, you know, like uh, the emerald tablets with tools. Uh, Drumbolo uh, Melchizedek has been doing this kind of work for a long time and there are many others who have been trying to raise awareness of our light bodies so that we can consciously start to develop the tools, the techniques to make this more a part of our conscious life. Um, so, right, with Drumbello, yes. with Drum, uh, thank you, with Drumbello Melchizedek, he's building the Merkaba and then mm -hmm. as well as trying to interstellar travel. Um, but it seems to me like, yes, there is a thread of thought that you spoke about, about bringing information and disclosure in, and I believe that that is a big part of evolving the human race. But I also think that there is a portion of the human race that would be completely shattered um, with disclosure and so you have that aspect within the human race itself. And then you also have those that are here to go through ascension, integration, and bring about a more of a holistic healing within themselves and being the, and being the, the point of disclosure within themselves. Yes, yes, I agree with that, that you're going to have all sorts of reactions when the, when the truth comes out and people such as yourself and others that have been um, listening to this show, I mean, you're all going to be playing very important roles because for every one of you, there's probably 10 million people that 
are not aware of this information. So you're, you're going to have to basically be the teachers and be the ambassadors, be the intermediaries between different ET races. Because I think when, when disclosure happens, um, you know, there'll be a short period, maybe several years, uh, not that long, I think, and then it's going to be open contact. And when we have open contact, it's, it's like the floodgates are going to open up. And because, you know, as we were talking about, there are many positive ET races out there that are wanting to meet with us. And, and for many, it'll be a reunion. And for others, it'll be a, a profound shock. And so, yeah, we all, all of us have roles to play on preparing people to either welcome back our, our, our kind of galactic family that we knew from previous lives or to help prepare people for basically meeting beings that they have no kind of, uh, kind of um, soul memory of uh, having co been connected to previously. Does your book uh, cover the specific races that are working with new um, healing technologies for integration of the light body? I talk a little bit about that um, in terms of, uh, say, uh, races like the Arcturians and the Andromedans in the book, and also in where I'm talking about the Celestials, which is the last couple of chapters in the book, uh, where they're talking about um, the need to just develop consciousness. Uh, I'm not talking so much about the light body uh, because that is kind of more specific techniques for how we can um, evolve our consciousness. But, but definitely I talk about the importance of, uh, of raising consciousness and not becoming dependent on technology in the book. You've been very gracious. I, thank you. I, the other question I had for you, and I'm, I'm going to purchase your book and read it, or your books, I should say. Um, have you had contact yourself? Um, I've, I've had some sightings. And back in uh, 1984, I had an experience where uh, I look back on it now, and I believe it was with uh, some celestials that were helping me at a time when um, emotionally I was kind of needing some, some help. And uh, there were three beings, and these were blue beings, um, and uh, they, they had a kind of shimmering light bodies. And I, when I was... In the, when they just appeared in my bedroom, and I I could see them, um, kind of like uh, as these life forms. They weren't physically solid; they were just kind of like uh, almost like an etheric form. But I I could see it, and the, I immediately felt that they were family, even though I knew my family, my physical family, uh, that it wasn't them. But I felt that they were my family, and it was a very beautiful experience, and it was. Very, that helped me a lot at that time. Were they? How tall were they? When did they shape shift into a form? Like no, they just had. They they just had a kind of a human outline. It was a, kind of like a blue light um, mm -hmm. outline, kind of like sparkling blue lights that were in the in the, in the form of a humanoid. Uh, but they just mm -hmm. exuded this very loving energy, and and I just felt recognition that they were family. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I appreciate your time. Thank you. Aloha. Bye-bye.
Thanks so much for calling in and um, enjoy the books. Okay, well, we are just about to um, wrap up, and we've gotten through the the callers with questions. So, um, Lavendar, do you want to um, add anything before I do wrap it up? Just that I'm thrilled with this book. I, I just want everyone to go on his website and order this book called Galactic Diplomacy. It will really give you an uplift. It will give you an idea of where you fit in the scheme of things. So please, um, please look at it, order it, and then just lay down for a weekend and absorb it <laughs> like I did. <laughs> and, and thank you so much, Michael, and we'll be talking in the future, okay? Okay. Thank you, Levanda. And Dr. Michael Sala, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your time and knowledge with our audience. And remember, when you see Craig Campobasso, um, make sure you give him a big smile and, and a hug from us. And um, gosh, you're, gonna, you're probably going to see a lot of people that we know. Um, so uh, just keep that with you. And hopefully, uh, when you say you're re- working on another book, um, when you're ready with that, come on back on, and we will introduce it to our audience. Thank you so much, Ariel, for having me on the show and for doing all this work in uh, raising people's awareness about our galactic brothers and sisters. Well, it is something that is time for and something that Lavendar had uh, been waiting for. I mean, 25 years, uh, George Van Tassel gave her, um, downloaded all this information um, about all kinds of things ET and then told her that she couldn't talk about it for 25 years until giant rock cracked and that would be her signal. And it was about 25, 26 years before that happened. So um, she's been a long time with this and and having this website is just the, the best way to share this information, having the radio show too. So I thank you so much for sharing your time with us. And um, from all of us here, we really appreciate your work. Thank you. Aloha. Aloha. And from everyone here at Starseed Radio Academy, we thank you for listening. And we will be back next week. And one more time, I would like to quote Viseus, the love you withhold is the pain that you carry. So have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 